0: Welcome to you all, and thank you all for coming to this conference. I'm John Robertson, and the conference is my responsibility, good or ill. Uh, The idea for the conference was mine, and I can only be grateful that so many of you found it interesting. It's one that reflects the stimulus that I've received since coming to Cambridge eight years ago. The place of time and history and political thought has been a recurrent theme in the weekly research seminar in political thought and intellectual history, Uh, in MPhil classes, and in my lecturing, and in particular in uh, our hugely enjoyable joint course in the history of international political thought, States Between States. Having decided to focus a conference on political thought, time, and history, I was immensely heartened by the willingness of prospective speakers to address the subject head on. The titles on the program are theirs, From first to last, they ask exactly the questions that I hoped we would discuss. Yet there's one speaker I would like to have added, and that's John Pocock. Pocock, who lives in Baltimore, cannot now travel this far to a conference, Uh, but I alerted him to the the conference, and in a letter I received yesterday, he remarks, I have, of course, a modest claim to have opened the subject in essays, in the 1960s. (laughs) And it is modest. (laughs) For over 50 years, Pocock has thought more imaginatively than any of us about time and history in political thought. Just come in and find a seat. There are plenty of seats. I'd like to take a few minutes in this introduction to indicate the ways in which he has approached these questions and set me thinking, and no doubt, many of us. As is well known, Pocock approaches the history of political thought through discourses, the languages taken in a broadly Wittgensteinian sense in which politics has been thought. And from the start, what interested him were the moments at which exponents of those languages had to turn to history to vindicate their relevance. Such moments occurred when institutions, the church, the law, governments, regimes faced and those within them had to address change and often simultaneously to assert continuity. One such moment, uh, Pocock's first, as it were, was the apparently dramatic shift in landholding in 17th century England and the accompanying need to understand and integrate the feudal with the common law and, hence, to rethink the ancient constitution. Another was the succession of crises facing 15th and early 16th century Florence, Hans Baron's crisis, uh, which Pocock rendered into the Machiavellian moment. And one can see, I think, why Pocock was so attracted to the Baron thesis because it fitted his own already formed understanding of when history will matter to political thought. Pocock's point wasn't simply that time and history are integral to much political thought. Indeed, his point wasn't that simple at all. Uh, the general point, that general point, that time and history are integral, might well accord with what is now termed political realism. But that alone would produce a banal, etiolated, and very limited history of political thought. The challenge, rather, was to identify the moments when history was indispensable to political thought, how it was deployed to reconceptualize politics, and which conceptions of time were involved. For time and history were and are themselves languages in the plural. And history was not always the appropriate mode. (coughs) There were languages which excluded history, confined time. The younger Pocock delighted in pointing out that the best exponents of such thinking had been the ancient Chinese. But then and since he's also acknowledged that the scholastic and Protestant natural lawyers understood their time, the age when Europe discovered (coughs) the rest of the world, to demand a response of universal validity, unbounded by historical particulars. At the same time, Pocock also knew that those universalists had continued to acknowledge and privilege one particular history, sacred history, Christian time, which would run from the fall and the flood to the return of Christ at some point in the future. This was the time and the history, he pointed out, in that stunning article of 1970, uh, to which Hobbes had supposed that Leviathan's readers would be bound. And it's the implications of this conception of sacred history, not only for European self-understanding since the fall of the Roman Empire, but for their understanding of their relation to the rest of the world, that Pocock has pursued through the many volumes of barbarism and religion. So I hope this conference will take off from, review, no doubt modify these insights of John Pocock. Above all, I hope it will identify many more ways in which texts of political thought have engaged with time and history, and have considered also just how far political thought should so engage, should engage, with time and history. Well, now I turn chair myself uh, and introduce briefly our first two speakers, Quentin Skinner and Christopher Clarke. They really should need no introduction, but for form's sake. Quentin Skinner is Cambridge's most distinguished historian of political thought. Formerly Professor of Political Science and then Regis Professor here, now Barbara Beaumont Professor of the Humanities at Queen Mary University, London. His most recent book, I limit myself to that, published just weeks ago, is From Humanism to Hobbes, Studies in Rhetoric and politics, and I'm pretty sure copies are upstairs. His subject now, which could not be bettered for the opening of the conference, is why states need time. I'll just introduce uh, Christopher Clark at the same time so I don't have to speak again. He's our current Regis Professor of History, the outstanding historian of modern Germany, most recently author of The Sleepwalkers, How Europe Went to War in 1914, a Penguin book. He will very shortly publish his next book on the exact theme of his paper today, The Times of Power. I'm enormously grateful to both of them for agreeing to launch this conference. Thank you John.
1: The theory of the state I take to be an invention of early modern philosophy and among early modern political writers The question of states and time (coughs) is perhaps most self-consciously addressed by those who are theorists of the state in what I might call the strictest sense. And here I'm speaking of those writers who think of the state as the name of a distinct person, that's to say categorically distinct both from rulers and from the ruled, so that it is the state, not the sovereign, whoever that might be, who is the so-called subjectium, or site, of sovereignty. The pioneers in this extension of the medieval theory of corporations to encompass the Kivatas, I take to be Grotius in the De Jure Bellum of 1625, and Hobbes in the Leviathan of 1651. But undoubtedly the most influential early modern theory of this exact character is that of Pufendorf, in his De Eure Natura et Gentium, of 1672. Pufendorf was, of course, influenced by Hobbes, but by contrast with Hobbes, who thinks that the state is merely a person by fiction, Pufendorf introduces into Western political theory the notion which is going to be so extraordinarily important, especially in German public law, that the state is the name of a persona moralis. And that, of course, was to prove the more influential view. You find it in Most later writers in the German natural law tradition, beginning with people like Beckmann and Huber, of course it becomes very prominent in the French Enlightenment. And here the great conduit is Barberac's um, French translation of Pufendorf, first published in 1706. And Pufendorf's core idea, of course you later find, I mean, very famously set out in the Encyclopédie, um, such that it became known to everyone. The view that the state is, as the Encyclopédie puts it, in personne morale, and that phrase is the one that recurs, of course, in the Contrat Social of Rousseau, and recurs perhaps m- even more influentially in uh, De Vartel's Les Droits de Jean of 1758, which is translated into English as early as uh, 1760. Now, if you want to understand the common view at which all these philosophers arrive um, about sovereignty as the property of states you need to begin by asking yourselves their view about how states come to be formed. And I suppose the clearest and certainly including Pufendorf, the most influential of these analyses is that of Hobbes laid out in chapters 16 and 17 of the Leviathan. That analysis, as I'm sure you all know, begins with what exists in nature, in which we are said to live as individual members of multitudes, um, solitary, not a society, and possessed equally, of all our natural rights. However, in that condition, reason instructs us that it's essential for self-preservation to transfer most of those rights, some are inalienable, but to transfer most of them, to a sovereign representative. That's to say, someone whom we authorise to act in our name and to exercise our rights in our our name, so that because they are authorised, we remain the authors of their action. And the whole of the theory, of course, goes author's, Authorization, authority. However, Hobbes insists, and here Pufendorf closely follows him, that this act of authorization that produces political authority changes the nature of the multitude. From being many, it becomes one person. And that is because, in authorizing a sovereign representative, the multitude now acquires a single will and a single voice, that of its representative and are thus capable, although they they cannot themselves act, being only a multitude, they're capable of having actions attributed to them because somebody performs them in their name. So notice the sovereign is not the representative of the multitude. Indeed, multitudes cannot be represented because they do not have a single will and they do not have a single voice. There's no such thing, obviously, as the voice of the people. You might have 52% and 48%, but that still sounds like two voices. That's a rather unfashionable view. But obviously, that's right. (laughs) Rather, the sovereign is the representative of the person of the multitude. Because the multitude in authorizing sovereignty becomes a person. So you can now ask the following question. What then is the name of that person of whom the sovereign is the representative? And the answer to that question is that is the person of the state. That is the fictive person. That is the personne morale. Well, you can call it a person morale, but it is, of course, true that to say that states act is only a fiction of the law. What happens is that sovereigns act, but their actions are attributed to the state. But, of course, attributed actions on this analysis are genuine instances of action, and so although states are only moral, or perhaps even only fictional persons, they are nevertheless real agents in the world. And, of course, the, the idea translates into the notion that actually... The state is the name of a real person. So notice that the emphasis in this whole natural law tradition of thinking about the state falls not on the wholly evanescent figures of individual sovereigns, their prudence, their judgments, their statecraft. It doesn't fall in that direction at all. It rather falls, as Hobbes and Bufendorf both explicitly put it, on the notion that certain things in civil associations are perpetual and that is where the dimension of time enters their account of the state. Sovereign representatives are what Hobbes likes to call natural persons, that's to say sane adults, Um, but that's to say they are men or women or they are assemblies of men and women. But men and women die, and so do members of assemblies, and indeed assemblies are even more mutable. But states do not die or at least the intention is, that in forming a state it should not die. The aim is, as Hobbes puts it in a celebrated moment in chapter 19 of Leviathan, that they should enjoy an artificial eternity of life. Pufendorf elaborates, here I'll quote the first English translation, uh, uh, White Kennets of of, uh, 1717. When we bring into being the compound moral person of the state, we do so with the aim of conferring lasting advantages, not merely upon ourselves, but our most remote posterity. So there's one reason, I think, why these writers are so anxious to substitute for the traditional idea of a body politic, which of course they do not talk about, the idea of the state as a legal person. Because those who had always wanted to speak of the corpus, the corpus politicum, were committing themselves to the view that it is like a natural body, it's a body. But of course bodies, in Machiavelli's famous phrase, are inevitably injured by time. The natural law theorists I'm talking about are trying to place the state beyond the injuries of time. Now there are many reasons why these theorists want us to talk in this very abstract way about the seat of sovereignty. But one reason they all give is to do with time and why time and states have to go together in a certain way. That's to say, in relation to a number of policies that states will wish to pursue, there being this artificial eternity of life is going to be of the utmost importance to making sense of those policies. And they really want you to focus on what those policies are. Now, one of the most important is said to be in the question of relations between states. And here, I suppose, the classic account is the one provided by Vartel, especially in his chapters on what he calls, rather quaintly, real treaties. Um, a real treaty is a one which is established with the intention that it should outlast time. I quote the 1760 translation. Any real treaty must be capable of outlasting changes of government and even variations in the constitution of states. But these requirements can be met only if we acknowledge that the signatories of these treatises cannot be governments. They can only be states with their artificial eternity of life. Any real alliance must therefore be affixed to the body of the state such that it may subsist as long as the state. So there's one case where time enters policies and you require this eternity of time. But the one that most interests them, and this continued, it doesn't now, I think, but it it continued to interest theorists of the state for a very long time, um, is the the requirement of a contracting agency of a kind of eternal character in relation to the decision by a government to take on a very large load of public debt. This is actually the, the subject the one subject in the concluding chapter of Pufendorf's De Jure, and I quote, It is just and for the peace of the state to recognise that even if such debts may have been incurred under a defunct government, yet the debt is still due. But if the government is defunct, who is the debtor? And of course that's Pufendorf's question, and the answer is, of course the debt can only be owed by someone with an artificial eternity of life. That's the only way to make sense of the notion that there is a debtor. And so the book concludes on that note, the debtor has to be the the the, persona moralis of the state. It cannot be anyone else. And that continues in Enlightenment discussion uh, on public debt. And indeed, if you think much later of Maitland's great essays on um, the importance of legal fictions, and especially what he calls the most triumphant of those fictions, namely the state... Uh, Of course, his example also is public debt and that wonderful essay on South American debt as state debt. Notice we don't call it state debt. I mean, even in the Greek crisis, we didn't call it state debt. What does it get called? It gets called sovereign debt or we call it the national debt. Um, But it's state debt in the tradition that I'm talking about and it has to be the state because there is an institution but it is not subject to time. So you could say ...that what these theorists are arguing... ...is not just that um, states need time... ...but that time needs states. There are certain policies... ...such that this artificial eternity is indispensable. So if you were to ask in summary... ...what these natural law theorists of the state... ...are saying about time and politics... ...they are saying that for certain distinct purposes... ...states not only need time... ...but endless time. Okay, that's what they're saying... But it seems to me that, I mean, this is a general hermeneutic principle, that we should always ask of any such theoretical commitment, not just what are its exponents saying, but what are they doing? I mean, let's have a hermeneutics of suspicion for a moment. What are these people up to? I mean, what's going on in this way of thinking about politics and time? What are they doing? So let me, in the second half of these remarks, address that question. And to give you the punchline straight away, in case you're already feeling nervous, um, <laughs> in the case of these natural law theorists, one of the things they are doing in presenting this whole theory of the state is to trying to block off a large number of questions about time and politics that had been central to classical and Renaissance political philosophy. So the anti-classicism of these writers is what strikes me so much as they think about time. Because they want you to stop thinking about time in politics in all sorts of ways. That's what they're doing. They're really trying to spoil our conference. OK, I think we can begin to see the nature of this underlying ideological project if we first ask what conception of time the philosophers I've mentioned express. They conceive of time as simply duration. So that the business of keeping an account of time, I'm now quoting Hobbes, is a matter of following and predicting its flow. Chapter 46 of Leviathan. So the artificial eternity of life that they want states to enjoy is understood as infinite temporal duration. States being designed, I'm quoting Pufendorf, at least in principle, to endure forever. So an infinite temporal duration. But here it seems to me that the first point to be noted is that even if you were to suppose, as they do, that duration is all that matters in thinking about politics and time, what you're being offered here is an extremely narrow uh, and excluding, or to put it another way, an extremely polemical understanding of the concept of duration. Just two points here. First, as we've seen, they think of this duration as endless, but what of the view, still widespread at the time that Hobbes was writing, that the world is approaching the end of time, and that we know this because it's foretold in the word of God, specifically in the Old Testament, and especially in the prophecies of Daniel. Well, of course, they have to dismiss this out of hand, and that is fundamental, I think, to Hobbes' desire to distinguish knowledge from belief, Many people believe this because many people believe that the Bible is the word of God. You can't possibly know that the Bible is the word of God. You can believe someone, as Hobbes says, who believes it because someone told him who believed it, who told it by someone who believed it. Um, it, As usual, Hobbes goes into satire when he doesn't like the look of an argument. (laughs) But, of course, you can't have foreknowledge of that. So that is completely dismissed out of hand. But notice also that these writers consider time as mere duration. So what of the view, much more substantial view at the time when Hobbes and Pufendorf were writing, that duration can be normative. It isn't just mere duration. Duration can be normative. For example, custom established over time can become law simply through time. Uh, the way that um, it seemed natural to lawyers in late 16th century France like Hotman or in early 17th century England like Sir Edward Cook to argue, a very Pocockian thought, the normativity of time. So what is a writer like Hobbes going to say about that? Again, he has to dismiss this out of hand and notice, of course, he turns to satire almost at once. I quote chapter 11 of Leviathan. It is solely ignorance that disposeth a man to make custom the rule of his actions like little children that have no other rule of good and evil manners but the correction they receive from their parents and masters. Save that children are constant to their rule, whereas men are not so, because grown strong and stubborn, they appeal from custom to reason, and from reason to custom as it serves their terms. So my first point is that in stressing that the way time matters in politics is as duration, the writers I've been considering offer a deliberately restricted view of duration. But my main point is not that. This is my main point. The claim that the way time matters in politics is as duration on any understanding of that term is itself intensely polemical. And as I say, I see it as designed to block off a number of other claims about politics and time central to classical and Renaissance thought. So let me turn to those. One of these claims is about eternity. Because the writers I've been considering think of time as duration, they think of eternity as endless duration. What else could it be? Um, what Hobbes in Leviathan chapter forty six calls an endless succession of time. But notice how polemical is that claim, as I hardly need to remind you, all Platonists and many Christians took eternity not as endless duration at all, but as timelessness. Now that's very important in relation for example to the desire of many such writers to want to talk about timeless laws but it's also important for the Platonist suggestion that the world of forms which is timeless, I mean that's crucial the world of forms is timeless nevertheless contains the essence of objects and quanti- qualities. So that questions about for example justice in the most important case because here we're in the republic Um, cannot be discussed without reference to a world which is without time. Not a world of endless duration at all. It is a timeless world. So what do the writers I've been talking about have to say about that? Well, again, they can only dismiss it out of hand. And here again is Hobbes. For the meaning of eternity, they will not have it to be an endless succession of time, Hobbes' view. For then, they should not be able to render a reason how God's will and preordaining of things to come should not be before his prescience of the same. So they teach that eternity is the standing still of the present time, that is, timelessness. Well, indeed, they do teach that. So what has Hobbes got to say about that? Which neither there they nor anyone else understands. Not perhaps his strongest dialectical moment. <laughs> so there is a thought about eternity. Let me end by returning to time. What I chiefly want to note about the natural law theories of the state and their view of time, justice, duration, is that that deliberately blocks off two further claims about politics and time, crucial to Renaissance thought. And one is the view that in politics, time is not only, or indeed not chiefly, not basically, linear in character. Well, you could maybe go further. I mean, Aristotle in Book One of the Metaphysics had even laid it down that in nature, time is not linear. It is cyclical. In his example, acorns grow into trees, that produce acorns that grow into trees, that produce acorns, and so weiter. All the more does he think that this applies to constitutions uh, and the politics of time. And this brings us to the notion of anacyclosis. The idea that over time, political forms invariably degenerate and do so in a potentially unending cycle. You find that doctrine, of course, in Aristotle's Politics, um, although he thinks that it can be broken. You find a version of it in Cicero's De Republica. But I suppose the most famous version in antiquity, because this is what Machiavelli picks up in the famous discussion at the beginning of the Discorsi, is uh, Polybius' discussion of anacyclosis uh, in Book Six of the Histories. But it's Machiavelli who makes this central to Renaissance thinking with the insistence, it's the very first theme, is it not, of the Discorsi, Book 1, Chapter 2, the cycle through which all commonwealths are made to pass. Uh, And, of course, this does bring us, John beautifully laid it out at the beginning, to John Pocock and his so-called modest contribution which centred on these questions, these Machiavellian questions. By the way, my very modest contribution was to say to John Pocock when he sent me this enormous typescript at the beginning of the 1970s, that everything seemed to be different moments and that he might call the book the Machiavellian moment. (laughs) Well, of course, in Machiavelli, the cycle begins with monarchies, which tend to tyranny, and are replaced with aristocracies, which tend to oligarchy, and are replaced by democracies, which tend to tyranny. And the cycle can only be broken on this account, and of course, this is the punchline of classical republican thinking in the Renaissance if you have a mixed republican constitution because only in that way will the three elements be brought together. It will be a very tense bringing together, but the consequence is that, as Machiavelli puts it, only those laws that will produce a vivere libero, a a free way of life, will be enabled to pass. So you break out of the uh, continuing flow of time with the constitution that will produce freedom. So what do the theorists I've been discussing have to say about that Well, they really don't want you to think in those terms, do they? I mean, all of these writers I've mentioned are passionate about the need for unified forms of sovereignty. And so one of their chief polemical aims is to undermine any belief in the special virtues of the mixed constitution. They always want unified sovereignty. And that, of course, is because they think that that will overcome anacyclosis once and for all, which they therefore do not have to talk about, and nor do they talk about it. The other view of politics and time I want to close by considering is expressed in antiquity and, of course, in the Old Testament as well as in classical antiquity in the form of the distinction between chronos, the flow of time, and kairos, or in Latin, Occasio, the idea of timeliness, there being a politically right time or wrong time to act. What Shakespeare likes to call ripe time is time. I'm thinking there of Worcester to Hotspur, the beginning of 1 Henry IV. No further go in this than I by letter shall direct your course when time is ripe, which will be suddenly. But by the way, William Shakespeare, easily the most interesting of the Renaissance political theorists, is obsessed with chaotic time, isn't he? And it's pivotal to several of the plays. So in Julius Caesar, the whole question is, is this the time? to get rid of Caesar, there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune as Brutus says to Cassius this is the time there's also this very anachronistic question that critics ask about how Hamlet seems unable to do anything why is he delaying, completely anachronistic question, he's waiting to see if the time is right, it's chirotic time and his tragedy is that he can't get the right time Well, that's a major theme in Renaissance political theory. Uh, And um, the great theorist, uh, again, is Machiavelli, this time in The Prince, where um, success in politics is made to depend overwhelmingly on being able to take advantage of opportunities and thus on being able to know when it's prudent to act, when it's prudent not to act. And that's how he comes to tell us about the three greatest political leaders... Cyrus, Moses, Theseus, chapter 6 of the prince. All of them had a great ocasio. They had a great opportunity. Moses found the people of Israel enslaved. Uh, Cyrus found the Persians ready to rebel against the Medes. Theseus found the Athenians dispersed. But they were all able to take advantage of their opportunities. That's what virtue is, the power to take advantage, to make use of timeliness. Moses rallied the people. Cyrus exploited the weakness of the Medes. Theseus brought the Athenians together. In each case, it was exactly the right occasion. Success in politics depends on understanding timeliness. So what, finally, do the writers, I began by talking about, have to say about that? Well, of course they're not unaware of it. Hobbes in Leviathan, for example, explicitly speaks... Um, at one point of the, the qualities that dispose men to irresolution. But what I want to note is that these writers don't want you to think about politics in that way. They really don't want you to think about state craft. What they want to place at the heart of politics is the idea of the fictional person who is the site of sovereignty. So institutions, structures, and their eternity. They want to get away from this individualist emphasis on prudence, foresight, individual practitioners of statecraft having those particular human powers. What they want to emphasize is legal systems and their endurance over time. So they don't even see themselves as writing about statecraft, as Machiavelli would have wanted to say. In fact, you can't imagine Hobbes or Pufendorf using that term. They are writing political science, not statecraft at all. So they never make the distinction between Kronos and Kairos, and indeed they scarcely even speak about political opportunities. In fact, I can't think of a single place in Pufendorf or Hobbes where they talk about the idea of a political opportunity. They just don't want you to be thinking like that. So to end, 24 minutes. Uh, May I note that all speakers notice... (laughs) I've been focusing on a powerful tradition in modern political theory that would seek to derail this conference. I'm not imputing that as an intention to these writers, but it is what they're doing. They limit the role of time in politics to the concept of duration, and they limit duration to a highly restrictive account of how you should think about that concept. So I'm hoping that the manner in which my remarks may serve as introductory to the conference is... Don't let these natural law theories of the state have it all their way. I hope, of course, that we shall talk, as they did, about duration of time in politics. But I also hope that we shall talk about endless time and about being out of time, politics and the timeless. And surely we shall want to talk about constitutions and cyclicality of time. And perhaps, if we're interested in statecraft, we shall want to talk, above all, about the notion of the timely in politics and timeliness. So there is a lot to talk about, and I'm sure we're all going to enjoy doing so. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, um, John, for your kind words of introduction. In a speech he uh, delivered at the Sorbonne on the 26th of September 2017... Emmanuel Macron, we see him here with the star-shaped bolus of yellow light that attends him on all of his travels, um, (laughs) spoke of the European Union, and I I quote, in, in, in actually strikingly Kozilekian terms, as our horizon, that which protects us and gives us a future. The Union, he argued, must end its civil war over budgetary, financial, and political differences to construct a genuine sovereignty. If it failed to rise to this challenge, he warned, the present, and with it the future, would be submerged by the past. Well, those uh, who wield power often invoke time in this way. Or rather, they assert or propose or imply a specific relationship, dynamic or static, between past, present, and future. In this sense, their utterances are often charged with what François Artaug has called historicity, A sense of assumptions that may be quite informal and intuitive about how past, present and future relate to each other. And the appeal to imagined timescapes remains one of the key tools of political communication. Everyone in this room will remember that the Brexit campaign was driven, sorry to mention it explicitly this time, um, was driven by the aspiration to take back control. The Brexiteer, Boris Johnson, was the chief propagator of this slogan, and I'm sure I have a picture of him somewhere. There's one. Sorry. I know I have a more sensible picture. Oh, there's another one. Sorry. And there's a... An, sorry. No, not that one. I'm sorry, there doesn't exist a sensible picture of Boris Johnson. But in any case, um, I have a picture of him, as you can see. But in any case, Johnson was also, as I'm sure you're all aware, the author of a biography of Winston Churchill, subtitle: How One Man Made History in which he made an extraordinary discovery, namely that Winston Churchill and Boris Johnson are in fact the same person. (laughs) In a wide-ranging analysis of pro-Brexit discourse, Duncan Bell found evidence of what he described as the mesmeric grip that the memory of empire retains over swathes of the British governing class. And over the same period, as you're all aware, Donald Trump mounted a challenge to conventional American historicity, or American governmental historicity, by becoming the first president of modern times overtly to reject the notion that America occupies an exceptional and paradigmatic place at the vanguard of history's forward movement. Now, whatever we may make of that claim, we may be critical of it in all kinds of ways, it's very unusual for a president to so openly disavow it. And in fact, he's the first president of recent times never to have used the phrase, the right side of history. On the contrary, Trump has suggested today's America is a backward, broken country with a broken society and a broken infrastructure whose task, paradoxically, is to reach back into a past, an anterior past, where American values were still uncontaminated and American society was intact. President Macron had these recursive arguments in his sights when he lobbied for a genuinely supranational sovereignty as the horizon of a European future. Now there's nothing new or uniquely modern about such chronopolitical manipulations. It may well be that power always bends time, just as gravity bends light. But whereas gravity is a universal physical constant, political power is wielded in ways that are highly cultural and culturally and historically <clears throat> contingent, meaning that how these distortions occur and what effects they generate will vary according to the constitution of the regime in question. In my brief words this morning, I want to explore the relationship between power and temporality in one small province of Europe, which as we know is just one small province of the larger world, the state that was once known as Brandenburg but came to be called Brandenburg-Prussia and then Prussia, before gradually merging into the German Reich in its Wilhelmine, Weimar, and National Socialist variants. Now, over the last few years, I've been working on a book that tries to gauge how the temporality of politics might have changed over time By sampling four moments in the history of this territorial entity, I looked first at the reign of the great elector, Frederick William, focusing on the decades after the Thirty Years' War, when he found himself locked in a struggle for power with his provincial estates, estates whose legal experts made exactly the arguments Quentin was telling us about, about how the, the extension of time, the duration of time, allows legitimacy to accumulate around customary usages and he, uh, this great elector found himself constantly arguing against this claim for accumulated legitimacy. Then I examined the reign of Frederick II, known as Frederick the Great. The third chapter looked at Bismarck, and the fourth and final substantive chapter explored the highly distinctive chronopolitics of Nazism. In other words, the approach was a bit like one of those vertical wine tastings, where you sample several key vintages from a single terroir, except that in this case it was a vertical time tasting. What can one learn from such an exercise? And I, today I just want to focus on a couple of points that, that it seems to me one can draw out of this. The first has to do with the shape of the history of time. We owe Reinhard Kozelek an immense debt. If the scholars, of the, of, uh, scholars such as Marc Bloch and, the, and those of the Annals School temporalized history by weaving the awareness of time into their reflections on historical epochs, and John, John Pocock did something similar for the history of political thought, it was above all Kozelik who did the converse, he historicized temporality. In Futures Past, a collection of sparkling essays on the semantics of historical time, Kozelik explored the history of time awareness, creating a subtle array of analytical tools drawn from a range of sort of germane disciplines, tools which we're still all using, as the papers at this conference, I imagine, will um, occasionally show. But Kozelik's account of this history was geared from below by a theory of modernization. At the heart of his project was the transition from pre-modern to modern ways of experiencing and apprehending time. And this in no way diminishes the importance or value of what he achieved. It's just that every focusing device brings some things into and other things out of focus. I mention this because my own survey suggested a slightly different pattern. Each of the regimes I examined possessed a distinctive temporal signature. Each regime moved to a different temporal music. The great elector, Frederick Williams, embryonic state executive, leaned into the future and away from the past. It was a history machine that steered its course and charted its own story by positing and then choosing among multiple futures. Frederick II's world hovered in philosophical stasis, centered on a king who communed easily with the ancients. And I'm thinking here of a letter he wrote to one of the uh, ministers at his father's court, where he said, I spent this afternoon in excellent, cu- uh, uh, in excellent company. Livy popped by and Polybius and had a chat with Cicero. Um, for them, these were contemporaries. Bismarck's historicity grew out of the tension between the torrential momentum of political and social change and the supposedly permanent and autonomous structures of the monarchical state. And the regime of the national socialists anchored itself not in history, but in the nonlinear time of racial identity. Now these ways of imagining time had in part a legitimating function. For elector Frederick William invoking the immediate dangers, he used this term all the time, before stehende Gefahr, the imminent dangers stored in the future was one way of undermining the standing of those who rooted their authority in the claim to continuity with the past. For Frederick II the rejection of that conflictual and kinetic understanding of the state's progress through history served restorative aims, such as the stabilization of the nobility in the face of socioeconomic change. In claiming that history unfolded in unforeseeable and fleeting kairotic moments of opportunity, Ocasio, as Quentin was telling us, Bismarck made the case for his own preeminence as a supremely skilled decision-maker and reader of the opportune moment. In fact, you see a kind of apotheosis of the political moment in Bismarck's time. And the flight of the Nazi regime from linear history to court endowed its pursuit of an apocalyptic project of racial self-realization with coherence. In fact, it may well have been the only thing that did so. Certainly, the so-called Nazi theory of race did not. If modernity as a timescape justified some forms of political behavior and constrained or delegitimized others, the same applied to each of the timescapes that I examined. The soundings I have taken of re- regime temporality across three centuries, it seems to me, complicate slightly the modernization narrative. Instead of a linear advance towards modernity, we see something more oscillatory. Changes in the intellectual climate fuse with a process of transgenerational uh, reflection in which prior forms of regime historicity are rejected, emulated, or modified. Frederick II's historicity was not unequivocally more modern than that of the elector and his councillors, it was just different. This does not mean that modernization was not taking place in some form in the societies that generated these regimes, but it does suggest that the relationship between societal or economic modernization and regimes of historicity may be more oblique than is implied by the binary opposition between pre-modern and modern forms of temporality. States have deep memories, and there's a cumulative logic to their self-awareness even when one regime abjures the claims or practices of its predecessors. Elector Frederick William, the great elector, rejected the recursive, very sophisticated, but highly recursive historical arguments of his estates, repudiating the claim that the antiquity, and also of the historians who wrote in their support, uh, repudiating the claim that the antiquity of their privileges and their traditions was in itself evidence of their irrefutable legitimacy. Frederick II of Prussia knew, but chose to dismiss the historical template of Samuel Pufendorf, who had written a compendious account of the great elector's reign in which he captured the dynamic historical awareness of that era. Bismarck admired the political autonomy of Frederick's, what he called Frederick's Machtstaat, but he also understood that by parliamentarizing the Prussian military monarchy, the revolutions of 1848 had created an entirely new point of departure. The Nazis celebrated Bismarck, of course, as the personification of a Germanic archetype, but their racist pseudo-biological political vision was the absolute negation of Bismarck's intuition that history unfolded in the field of tension between the monarchical state and the forces of civil society. Neither civil society nor the state commanded the respect of the Hitler movement, both were denounced as the supposedly Jewish inventions of liberal political theory. And the weight and depth of the Nazi rejection of history only makes sense against the background of the debacle of the old state-centered historicism whose hold on the political culture of the German-speaking lands had once seemed so secure. One advantage of the sequential episodic approach that I adopted is that it captures the cumulative reflexive quality of the relationship between one era and the next. Joining the dots diachronically can enable us to plot the outlines of what Achim Landwehr has called a Zeitengeschichte, at least with one narrow, within one rather narrow domain of human activity. And a second point uh, has to do with method. A Zeitengeschichte in Landwehr's sense that confined itself to formal utterances by key decision makers on the subject of time would be a very dry and slender volume. The wielders and shapers of political power are rarely chronosophers of distinction that Boris Johnson is articulating a specific historicity when he ventures to write a book about Winston Churchill seems undeniable. But if you're interested in what that historicity is, uh, there are probably better people to ask than Boris. (laughs) And this means that if you're interested in pursuing these questions, you need to operate inferentially. As far as I'm aware, Frederick William, the great elector, never addressed himself directly, and I've searched long and hard, to the question of what history was or how he saw the present as relating to the past. That just wasn't his thing. It's when he's casting around for arguments against the claims of his estates, or when he's making a case for a doctrinal reconciliation of the Calvinist and the Lutheran confessions, that he becomes articulate about his understanding of history, an understanding that's further distilled and elaborated in the history he commissioned Samuel Pufendorf to write of his reign. And the most powerful expression of how this understanding shaped public awareness of the regime is not to be found in any work of formal written exposition, but in the intricate rituals and displays of the first Prussian royal coronation of 1701, which communicated an unequivocal renunciation of historical continuity and the authority of tradition. They just simply uh, abstained from any claim that the new Prussian crown bore any relationship to any prior form of state or, or, or um, crowned authority. If you, want to start, if you want to understand Frederick II's very different historicity, and in particular the king's distinctive awareness of the texture of time, you could do worse than simply look at the paintings he collected. This is Antoine Watteau's love in the Italian theatre. Standing in a semicircle and facing the viewers, 11 people gather around a man playing guitar. They're wearing the costumes of the stock characters from the Italian Commedia dell'Arte, the playful Arlecchino, the pompous university doctor, the swaggering captain, and so on and so forth but they're not standing on a stage. The light of a torch catches curving boughs and wisps of foliage, and in the top right-hand corner, a moon nestles among clouds. To say they seem out of place seems an understatement, and yet they're chronologically displaced as well. In 1716, when Watteau painted this image, the Commedia dell'Arte was already in decline, and in 1766, when its presence in the picture gallery at Sanssouci, the summer palace of Frederick II, is first recorded, it evoked already an indistinct and distant past. Frederick II was an avid, indeed an obsessive collector of Watteau, who had been dead for 19 years by the time he came to the throne. He acquired so many of the French artist's paintings that Berlin-Potsdam, the Berlin-Potsdam complex, today remains, after Paris, the second most important location of his work. Watteau, the most celebrated painter in the Fête Galante manner, was renowned for dreamlike pastoral scenes inhabited by archetypal costume figures. And what strikes us most about these images is their timelessness. As Thomas Kavanagh has noted, they refuse to provide a springboard to narrative. They resist alignment with anything we could call history. Frederick never set down in writing the reasons for the unusual ardor with which he pursued works by Watteau, but his writings reveal beyond doubt that he saw in them something that captured the texture of his own lived existence. Paint yourself in Watteau's brushstrokes, he urged his friend and former tutor, Jourdan in 1742, not in Rembrandt's. Good advice to us all. <laughs> Throughout Frederick's life, works in the Fête Galant style dominated the rooms privately frequented by the king at Sanssouci. It's true, he also bought history paintings and old masters and so on, but he placed them further away, and in the public buildings of the Neues Palais, where international diplomats came and so on. But in his own private galleries, it was Watteau and the other artists of the Fête tradition who dominated. Nazi writers and functionaries did occasionally make sub-Heideggerian declarations on time and history, but the exhibitions orchestrated by the SA, the SS Ahnenerbe, compliant museum directors, and the Ministry of Propaganda and Enlightenment are a far more eloquent reflection on the inner timescape of the regime. In the spring of 1935, the Swiss writer and journalist Max Frisch visited the National Socialist mega-exhibition, Miracle of Life, Wunder des Lebens. And you can see from that image what a modern, uh, how modern in, in its kind of appearance and in its uh, glossy surfaces, this, um, the, the, the book for this exhibition looked, and the entire exhibition was like that. The Swiss writer and journalist Max Frisch visited the exhibition. He was fascinated by the technical perfection of the exhibits. In the vestibule, he marveled at a, as what he described as a glass human being. You can see a sort of uh, representation of it there whose internal organs are shown by a system of internal lighting, a work of cutting-edge German technology. So in terms of its technological achievements, this was a you know on the cutting edge of, of modernism. But the entire show was dominated by a massive bell of, of life, Lebensglocke, in, in the main hall. Four times the size of a human being, the bell dominated a central court dedicated to family, people, nation, chiming once every five minutes to announce that nine new Germans had just been born. <laughs> beneath, the, beneath the tower in which the bell was suspended, sand poured through an oversized hourglass, signifying that over the same five-minute interval, only seven Germans had died, a net gain per five minutes of two. <laughs> As one wandered through the exhibits, Frisch wrote, one's thoughts were constantly being disrupted by the clang of this bell. Its purpose was obvious enough, to demonstrate the inescapability of biological time. One way of tracing these epochal variations in time sets and of of specifying their meaning for the process that we call politics is to chart the changing valency of the decision. And uh, Quentin touched on that too, going back to Machiavelli's interest in opportunity and political decision-making. In his History of the Great Elector's Reign, Pufendorf dwelt at great length on decisions. What we would describe as historical events play uh, a relatively subordinate role in his account. He has very little to say about them, and and nor does he have much to say about personalities, about individuals or their contribution to affairs. Um, All these things are viewed primarily through the prism of the choices faced and made by the elector and his advisers. Indeed, these are virtually the only points where Pufendorf's otherwise rather plodding and one-dimensional account acquires real dynamism and analytical texture. Again and again, Pufendorf unfolded decision positions in great detail, granting the reader a view of each predicament before its resolution had been found and exposing the reasoning of the decision-maker and his advisers in such a way that you can see a plurality of alternative futures opening up, always in the subjunctive mood, both in the German and in the Latin original. If the elector went to the Rhine, he would, exp- he would expose Prussia, uh, which was, sorry, if, he, if the elector went to the Rhine, he would expose his eastern uh, territory, Ducal Prussia, Pomerania and the Mark to to danger and would alienate his ally, the King of Denmark, who was also at war with Sweden and was urging him to deploy his forces in Pomerania. And yet, if he concentrated on securing Pomerania, staying in the east, in other words, and driving out the Swedes, this might well leave France in a strong enough position, blah, blah, blah. All these endless chains of possible consequences of possible actions. These decisional moments in Pufendorf's narrative, and they're very frequent, situate the decision-maker within a threat map in which his task is to balance options, each of which implies a possible future. Pufendorf doesn't ever tell us which personalities took a specific view. He wants to expose the nature of the decision-making task itself. The idea of the decision as an exposed threshold is completely absent from the political writings of Frederick II. Frederick made a number of monumental decisions, which is to say that he did a number of things whose consequences reverberated widely. But the shuddering, fearful vibration of great events is strangely absent from Frederick's reasoning about past, present, and future. Contingency, in his account, was crowded out by will. Decisions were a function of systems, systems if necessary in the head of the sovereign actor, resistant to short-term shocks and disruptions. The sovereign ought not to be merely responding to opportunities. Decisions ought to be the expression of long-laid plans. So he wrote, The drama of those scenes in Pufendorf, where the great elector gripped in a dilemma, heard the divergent advice of his counsellors and carefully weighed up the dangers of each course of action, possessed no charm whatsoever for Frederick, who strove to embody absolute autonomy, both as a man and as a prince. His two most famous political gambits, the invasion of Silesia in 1740 and the occupation of Saxony in 1756, were both preemptive. They weren't prompted by a direct um, threat. Finally, Frederick's intuition that history was subject to self-repeating cyclical patterns diminished the weight of the event of the decision and of the moment in which the decision occurred, at least in his thinking about these things. In a world where everywhere, uh, where everything that went around came around, and the states were life forms, and he often used this metaphor, passing through a cycle of maturation and decay, or planets locked in circular orbits, uh, as he so often insisted, the decisions that produced victories and defeats, treaties and alliances might be quite important, but ultimately they were products of history's essentially repetitive structure. They could not acquire the philosophical weight they had possessed for Pufendorf or would possess in a later age for Otto von Bismarck. I'm going to stop here, but very keen on keeping good time. But in closing, let me go back to Emmanuel Macron. What struck me when I read that speech at the Sorbonne in September last year was how similar his arguments were to those advanced by the great elector. Macron spoke, as I mentioned earlier, of Europe as our horizon, that which protects us and gives us a future. Macron went on to propose many things, but his central theme recalled the arguments of the great elector and his administration against the holders of provincial privilege in order to prepare prepare proactively for the challenges of the future, ecological transition, climate change, globalization, migration, security threats, Europe must end its civil war over budgetary and other issues. The member states must learn the virtues of solidarity, an injunction that recalls the elector's reminder to his estates, when he repeatedly made, that the provinces, for all their distinctive privileges and traditions, were limbs of one head, membra unius capitis. If the nation-states failed to rise to this challenge, Macron warned, the present, and with it the future, would be submerged by the past. Very similar claims are made by the great elector. In, the, in his era, the appeal to future danger had been part of an argument for the concentration of power. But the circuitry that made such arguments effective then is today no longer in evidence. Partly, of course, because the relationships between states and the most formidable threats they face has changed. In the domain of climate change, for example, and this is something that Annabel has touched on, in the domain of climate change, um, and Amitabh Ghosh has also made this point in a study called the Great Derangement, there is no single state structure with the competence to address issues of such scope and gravity, but only a plethora of states whose pursuit of individual interest impedes progress towards a systemic solution, so that instead of empowering the state in its pursuit of transcendent ends, the Great Derangement holds up to the structures of territorial state authority a mirror of their impotence. Whether Macron will succeed in restarting the European motor and reoccupying the future with the objectives that gave rise to EEC, EC and EU in the first place remains unclear. For the moment, the current unsettling of temporal awareness, which is itself a cultural phenomenon of great historical interest, continues to deepen. Its traces can be detected in the retro field of contemporary political rhetoric, the surge in book titles about the end of stuff, um, the end of democracy, um, David Runciman is dust up here um, the end of the right, the end of the left the end of liberal politics, the end of modernity the end of history and so on and so forth there's the ubiquity of so-called presentism in other Hartog's terms and nostalgia, the exhaustion of the future as a category of political action in both liberal democratic and ex-communist, ex-communist communist polities the collaged or palimpsestic timescapes of much contemporary fiction and of those many works of art that have focused attention in recent years on time as a destabilizing dimension of experience. And they can be detected, these traces can be detected in a heightened awareness of time as a problematic category across the humanities and especially in our own discipline. And indeed our conference today and tomorrow is in a sense um, symptomatic of that development. And this flux in temporal awareness, which is itself I think a consequence or a reflection um, of instabilities in global and regional power, Um, Attending to it, attending to this flux in temporal awareness, will not necessarily enable us to undo the appeal to recursive politics, but it may, at the very least, help us to understand that appeal better. Thank you very much.